I will start again. Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives on uh, Sunday, the 23rd of October. Today, we're bringing you a live Radical Feminist Perspectives from Cardiff, from a WDI Fringe event in uh, just near the Philia Conference. And we're going to talk about Radical Feminist Perspectives. Um, we've got an audience here uh, of up to 50. At the moment, we've got about uh, nearly 20 women or maybe 20 of us in the room and we'll probably get more gradually. So the plan is for today, we're going to do a normal Radfem Perspectives of about an hour discussing radical feminist ethics. And then we're going to have questions and you can put questions in the chat or in the Q&A if you're online. So there are 60 of us online at the moment, um, internationally, and then there's you know over 20 now in the room. Uh, so put questions in the chat and we'll cover them at the end of the presentation. So the first presentation is going to come from Lauren Levy from the USA on radical feminist ethics. Then we're going to hear from Sheila Jeffries more on radical feminist ethics, and then from me on the ethics of radical feminist organizing. And then we'll have questions and hopefully a really good debate. And we'll go on for an hour and a half today. So I'm really pleased to hand over now to Lauren Levy, who's going to um, talk to you about insights into radical feminist ethics. So I'll, I'll get the screen too. Thank you, Lauren, and over to you. Good morning. Um, I this, this kind of came about, it, but it occurred to me to have a discussion about uh, radical feminist ethics and particularly uh, radical feminist ethics in communication, because in the 1970s, I lived on what might be described. Yeah. Yes. People at the back of the room can't hear you. Okay. You, you need to have microphones. We, can you try to do it louder? Because with mics, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I'll try. Okay. Or we can try it. Try, let's try with a microphone because it'd be easier for you. Um, so let, we need to turn it on. It's better if it's up more upright. Yeah, it's better if you think it's amazing. Okay, try. The, can you hear this at the back? No, that's not on. Can you hear this? Yeah. Yes. 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 Let's see if and Laura is checking the sounds online to okay. see if that's interrupts. How does this work? Is this better? You put it closer. Is this better? Closer. Hello. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll keep it here. Is that okay? You need to speak a bit so they can check. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is this uh, carrying to the back of the room? Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, hello, 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 okay, hello. Good. Shall I shall I start? Yes, yeah, start again. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so this this topic occurred to me, uh, radical feminist ethics and particularly radical feminist ethics in communication, because um back in the 1970s, I lived on what might be described as a a lesbian motorcycle collective um, in in Vermont. And um, we, one of the things that we did, we was, we talked about a new set of ethics, a new kind of ethics. And we talked about it on an ongoing basis. We talked about it all the time. We talked about it every night. We wanted to make a new world and we wanted to make a new order. And 
one of the ways that we wanted to get there was by rethinking um, uh, ethics, uh, feminist, radical feminist ethics, and, and in our case, particularly uh, lesbian ethics. One problem with patriarchy is that only men got to negotiate the basic deal. Men created the rules and men agreed to the rules, but women didn't. So for instance, marital rape is cool, but hitting a man below the belt is not only horrifying, but unethical, deeply unethical to hit below the belt. We can't, we women, we can't reasonably be expected to obey rules that we didn't agree to. Radical feminists need our own rules for ethical conduct and we need to arrive at them collectively, not top down. We need a social contract designed collectively by women, agreed to by generally all women and enforceable by any woman. Today, I want to propose some ethics around how we can argue and disagree with each other without causing some women to storm out of the discussion and slam the door so that we can actually reach a general consensus on a new radical feminist social contra uh, contract, social contract, or on any substantive issue uh, in that context. My aim here is to begin a discussion on radical feminist communication and offer some concrete proposals. Um, they're just proposals. So, because it needs to be collective, yeah. So, what would help us is some principles governing how we will argue and how we won't argue, our argumentative processes. We won't be able to agree on principles for reorganizing society and strategies for achieving that reorganization unless we have an opportunity, all of us, to be heard and have our ideas uh, honestly considered, thoroughly discussed, and ultimately either generally accepted or rejected on their merits. Radical feminist discourse can't be about an individual winning an argument. It needs to aim toward collective clarity, collective understanding, and ultimately collective agreement. It can't be about being nice. It's too easy for that to turn into traditionally feminine behaviors that are not at all conducive to making a collective deal among women. I think radical feminist discourse needs to aim for directness, truthfulness, honest argument techniques, and an opportunity for everyone to be heard on the topic at hand. I suggest that the following list of argumentative devices be considered unethical in radical feminist discourse and need to be avoided and called out whenever they occur. First, interrupting and talking too long. It's disrespectful to the group and it undermines collectivity. Women must self-monitor to ensure that they don't speak much more frequently or much longer than any other woman. To address interrupting and talking too long when it does occur, a woman can be asked not to interrupt or to sum up and end if she's talking too long. Second, deflection. A subcategory of deflection is whataboutism. 
Here's an example. A woman observes that it is mostly men who assault their domestic partners. Another woman immediately says, but it's not all men. And sometimes women do that too. The effect is to undermine legitimate generalization. And generalization is essential for making a sex class analysis. I think the remedy is to call it out and correct it. You can say something like, don't deflect. Generalization is legitimate and necessary. <clears throat> and there can be a discussion about why, <clears throat> about why generalization is legitimate and necessary in making a sex class analysis. Third, straw manning. Straw manning. This is where, let's say, woman A makes a statement. Woman B then pretends to restate it, but restates it wrong, changing its meaning. She then gleefully proceeds to demolish the inaccurate restatement that she herself created. To avoid accidental straw manning, woman B can first ask woman A if her understanding of the original statement is accurate and then proceed with her counter argument only if the answer is yes. When straw manning does occur, it can be called out and the original statement can then be restated and recentered as the topic at hand. For example, you say, lesbians are overall better situated than straight women to see men realistically. Now, that may or may not be true and its accuracy can legitimately be discussed. But what's not legitimate is if then someone else says, how can you say that lesbians are superior to straight women? That's not true. And besides it's divisive, right? So her statements may be true, but they are not pertinent because they're not in response to what you actually said. Fourth, moving goalposts. Here, a woman makes an argument, then you successfully, unquestionably rebut it in its entirety. The other woman then proclaims that a different argument, not previously part of the discussion, was not successfully rebutted. So there. Here's an example. A woman says, trans women are women and belong in women's public, space, uh, public restrooms. You say, oh, please, men can't become women. Humans are men or women based only on their sexed bodies and men present a danger to women in public restrooms. And here are the statistics to back that up. She then comes back with, ha, huh, how are you going to keep men out? Check their birth certificates every time they pee? Okay, so here enforcement is a new topic that she has introduced because she's lost the argument on the original topic. But she doesn't want to acknowledge that you won. She could instead say, okay, I can see that you're right. Imagine if that happened. <laughs> but how can men be kept out of female spaces? Right? If she fails to concede that you are right, her use of moving goalposts 
can be called out as being a new issue before the existing issue was resolved. Then anyone can restate the original issue, which was our so-called trans women uh, or men. Um, our, uh, sorry, our so-called trans women, women or men, and should they be barred from female spaces? That was the original topic. And then ask the group if the issue at hand has been successfully resolved. And if so, ask the group whether they'd like to address the new issue, which is enforcement. So ethical process can enable explicit resolution and the group can move forward having established its agreement on the first issue. Which means that moving forward, it doesn't need repeated discussion ever. You'd agree. Fifth, label and dismiss uh, or uh, ad hominem. And a subcategory is name calling. So, a familiar example. If you are a turf fascist Nazi right wing bigot, then I don't need to address anything substantive that you say, because if you are a turf fascist Nazi right wing bigot, then you automatically have no credibility on any issue. Label and dismiss is the equivalent of plugging your ears and singing la 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 la, I can't hear you. Another example of label and dismiss is calling a woman crazy or otherwise diagnosing her or psychologizing about her emotional stability. Her emotional state is none of your damn business. Your business is just to rebut her argument on its own terms if you can. Label and dismiss is often used by our enemies as a justification for no, no platforming and no debate. It would be great if we could not do it to each other or to anyone. Six, emotional manipulation and bullying. I put these together because they are complementary. They're gendered versions in a way of the same device. The term cry bully captures the congruence of the two things. Bullying is direct intimidation by means of an explicit or implicit threat and is easily recognizable. Emotional manipulation depends on framing someone as not a good person if she doesn't agree or comply with your stated or unstated demands. But there's also usually an implicit threat with the manipulation as well. If you are not a good person, your arguments on all topics will be dismissed as having no credibility and you may be socially or professionally ostracized. For example, what you are saying feels harsh and unkind. Another example, I've told you this topic is triggering for me and you know how I sometimes think about suicide. Now you can't argue against me on it because now you know that it will damage me. Another example, is ostentatiously and wordlessly bursting into tears. As it stands now, there are almost always some women who will allow a meeting to be derailed 
in order to take care of the apparent feelings of a crying woman. And that is the point of this device, because then everyone will have been taught not to open that can of worms ever again. If any woman calls out that it is the crying that is the bad behavior, she is likely in the current cultural climate to be monstered and ostracized as inhumane. This type of manipulative behavior has been appropriately called the tyranny of hurt feelings. I'm suggesting that it needs to be called out and not rewarded. The remedy is to understand, think, that ostentatiously bursting into tears is itself antisocial behavior. I'm suggesting that there needs to be an understanding that if we sincerely need to cry, we do it outside of a political meeting. Leave the meeting, have a cry, then breathe and wash your face, and then return and state what was logically or ethically wrong with the statement that upset you. Harsh, I guess. Seventh, gaslighting and reversal, or DARVO. Uh, DARVO is an acronym that means deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. These are just different ways of lying with the aim of making a sister doubt her own perceptions of reality. Example, simple example of a statement. Cis women are privileged compared to trans women, right? But the objective, easily observable truth is that all men are privileged over all women. There was, um, I, I had a friend uh, many years ago who had been uh, consistently raped by her father uh, through, throughout her whole childhood uh, from before she could even remember. And um, when she was 13, he, he, was, um, he was raping her while he was driving a car and he crashed and he was knocked unconscious. And as a result of that, when the police arrived on the accident scene, they caught him in the act and he went to prison for raping his daughter. <clears throat> Years later, when she was in her thirties, she went to uh, visit him, um, thinking that she would confront him about some of this stuff. And she started to, and he said to her, never mind, I forgive you for putting me in prison. Right. The aim, of course, was to was to create guilt in her and to reverse victim and reverse victim and offender. Yeah. So it'd be great if we could not lie to sisters. Lies are crazy making. They're not kind. I suggest that we do call out other women's lies, explaining why they are lies. It would be great if we could if we could agree, if we could explicitly agree not to tolerate lying, including gaslighting and reversal, even don't even tolerate it from other women. 
maybe we could make it shameful to lie to women just to win a damn argument. So there are two payoffs. There are two payoffs that I have. There are probably more. But there are two payoffs that I, I can think of immediately that we get from avoiding dishonest discourse. One is we can make progress in figuring out our actual situation and in collectively planning strategies that we can all get behind without alienating any sisters because of bad process. And second, we can avoid having our bad behavior and bad, ethic, bad ethics called out by our enemies, both patriarchy in general and the trans machine in particular have terrible ethics and they're aimed at subjugating all women and girls as a sex class. It's really easy for us to do better. And I'm suggesting that it is only by adhering to ethical processes that we can win the hearts and minds of the public at large. We need good ethics in order to win. Thank you, over to you, Sheila. Hi, everybody. Can everybody hear me? Yes? Yeah, that's great. Uh, that was terrific, Lauren. So clear and so much of what you said, I absolutely have experienced and I know really well. And I think, uh, can you hear me now? No, I think it's only your voice that is strong. It's not, not, it's not working. She said it's on. Yeah. Uh, this, this is my ordinary voice. Is that different? No, it's better. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I've come across just about everything you were talking about, and it's very nice to hear it all sort of plotted out. And I could see women in the audience nodding, and they all know all of those things. So it's really nice to have that explained. Uh, and of course, in terms of the very first one that you mentioned, which was that we are not supposed to take up too much time in conversation. I remember that very, very well from the early 1980s when I was in Women Against Violence Against Women. And I was told that I was dominating because I said far too much. And so I learned to be a very fast speaker. I'm an extremely fast speaker. I know that's naughty because it's a way of sort of getting around the rules. But I became incredibly fast. So I would do in two minutes what would take others 10 minutes and then sit back. Hmm, that's OK. Um, so that was very naughty. But it means that I'm often very much too fast. And women say, you're far too fast. You're far too fast. I can't. But that's because I learned to follow the rules. OK. Um, so in terms of ethics, it, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. So we can only just sort of scratch the surface here. Um, I'm going to concentrate today on love, sex, and friendship, which of course is absolutely massive, um, and talk about a small number of the ways in which we as feminists relate to each other, which have been discussed by us all in ethical terms. It's huge. Back in the 1970s to 1990s, feminist theorists and philosophers, mostly in the US, mostly lesbians, did talk and write in newsletters a great deal about all the ways that women relate to each other in great detail. And this doesn't happen today, of course. It doesn't happen yet in this stage of the movement. 
because we're building a movement up again. We're in time of crisis and there's no women's community yet. There are not women's groups, lesbian groups in every town, women's centers, conferences, discos, all those things. Um, and we rarely meet each other offline. And I think this weekend is a very, very valuable opportunity to do so. It's great. Uh, and it may be that we don't talk about the ethics of relationships because it's very hard to even have relationships whilst women are under such threat, such as having gangs of vicious misogynistic men trying to stop us speaking and trying to stop us being together. So many of the conversations that we used to have and need to have again are not, I think, taking place at the moment. But this is a kind of beginning to be able to do that, I think. What I understand by feminist ethics relates to what we used to call once upon a time, living the revolution now. I think it's probably a phrase from the left. Uh, and this means that in order to have revolutionary change, to create a better world for women, we need to be able to imagine what the future looks like and set about creating that world as much as we can in the present, or it will never happen. Uh, if it's all put off until after the revolution, you know all about that. Women were told after the revolution, we'd be okay by the men on the left. If we put off till after the revolution, it's not gonna happen. So we create the revolution now. Another similar phrase that was used on the left in the 1970s was the politics of everyday life. And this can and should cover how to live with things like climate change, what decisions to make about consumption, for instance, which people are prepared to talk about in a way they don't talk about feminist ethics particularly. Um, but the politics of everyday life um, also covers how to live in relation to class and race oppression. And we did talk about that a great deal and don't talk about that so much today. Uh, and also, of course, it covers what feminists call the personal is political. And that means women's oppression is carried out mainly in what had previously been seen as the private sphere of the home and not recognized as political being a political scientist and having taught in political science, I mean, this is not understood anywhere in political science. Personalist political does not exist as a concept. It's all parliaments and parties and totally masculine stuff. Um, now, feminists pointed out that the politics of women's oppression took place mainly in the home because the husband and father had power and created little kingdoms of their own and very often a situation of slavery for women. The home is the crucible in which the possibilities of public politics are formed. So unless, uh, if we have slavery in the home, then we will have terrible inequality outside it. Um, children are brought up in homes where men dominate, they disrespect their mothers, institute a reign of terror and so on. So in that situation, we cannot expect women to be equal in the public world or for any kind of reasonably civilized uh, politics in the public world. The personal is political, of course, also means that the, women, the, the way women treat their bodies, like beauty practices, ways of standing and sitting, of speaking, of using eye language, are all constructed through the power relations of male domination. And we sought at one time to change all of this. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Because none of these discussions take place now. Um, this is not as much understood now, for instance, criticism of beauty practices, for instance, it's treated as personal attack on individual women. So it's very, very difficult to have structuralist, let's say, conversations about 
um, the way in which women behave and what they do to their bodies. Uh, I do think that all of this relates to ethics, but I don't have space today to talk much about how all of that works, but I think these are all conversations to begin again in this new stage. What, what's different about the ethics I will focus on today is that it's not about just what can be chosen, the decisions that we make and how they fit in with the world we're creating, but how we relate to other women. Ethics is about women making decisions about how we relate to each other. And the basis of feminist relationships, of course, is the attempt to create equality in those relationships and the, the uh, destruction of hierarchy and dominance and submission. So this was also part of what Lauren was talking about, which is don't talk too much in groups and don't take up too much of the time and, you know, um, don't, all of that stuff and not having speakers. Conferences in the 1970s had no speakers. Can you imagine that? Look at the conference that we have been visiting today. There wasn't a single speaker at any of the feminist conferences in the 1970s because we were trying to create egalitarian ways of relating to each other and get rid of hierarchy. Uh, in the 1980s, lesbian feminists in the UK and heterosexual feminists too saw the creation of a sexuality of equality as absolutely fundamental. And we understood that the sex of male domination, which consists of eroticizing women's subordination, had to be brought to an end if there was to be any chance of ending all violence against women that stemmed from it, such as coercive and unwanted sex in relationships, rape, sexual harassment, sex, murder, pornography, prostitution, etc. That was fundamental to feminist ethics and politics. And indeed, it's hard to separate um, feminist ethics and politics. I mean, we can have endless discussions about is there a difference, how do they fit together, and so on. But perhaps the difference is that what I call here ethics is regularly understood as being beyond politics, as being personal and private, whereas rape is understood by all feminists as a problem, um, and whereas what otherwise happens in the bedroom isn't the other ways in which women relate to each other are not so clearly seen as being about uh, politics. In the 1970s, we assumed as feminists that equality in everyday life was a common goal. But in the 1980s, we had to fight a new threat to the development of a sexuality of equality, which was the development of a political movement of lesbian sadomasochism, which was promoted and powered by a new lesbian sex industry, which had no existence when we began our lives of loving women. And I was involved in the lesbian feminist fight against sodomasochism, as were I think some others in this room, and I'm sure you will know uh, well about it. Uh, back in 1990, that is 32 years ago, I gave a talk at an international feminist book fair in Barcelona. And I think what I said there is relevant today. So I'll just um, repeat a little bit of what I said 32 years ago on this topic. Um, I said, I became a lesbian feminist in the 1970s, and I'm sure many of us here had the same experience, a few of you have. We had all kinds of dreams and visions, and I believe you cannot change the world and you cannot have a revolution without having a vision in your head. What is in your head enables you to have change, to create action. You cannot do it without. So what's in your heads is crucially important. And in the 70s, we were trying to change everything. Remember, I was writing in, in you know, 1990 about the 70s as if that was history. 
Uh, we were going to change emotions. We were going to change the whole way we lived. It was all going to be around equality, loving each other, respect, dignity, sisterhood, all kinds of things, which in all kinds of circles are now seen as sissy, weak, boring, foolish, even by those who are what they call themselves post-feminists. At the time, there were women calling themselves post-feminists. They were over it. At the beginning of the 1980s, some women started saying how it was necessary to have a lesbian erotica. There is now lesbian prostitution, lesbian strip, lesbian sex toys, lesbian dildos, lesbian pornography, lesbian erotica, and so on. The assumption seems to be that the lesbians who for thousands of years related to each other without any of these things must have been a bit boring. What we have in our heads around sexuality, the thoughts and ideas we have are going to affect the world we create. I would suggest that already the existence of the lesbian sex industry is brutalizing those lesbians who are very much involved in it. And many, many thousands of lesbians and other women, of course, have been involved in it. Uh, we were and should now be concerned with the world we want to create, is what I'm saying. The world that lesbians and feminists seek to create doesn't include pornography, prostitution, or any other kinds of sexual violence against women. Feminist ethics and living the revolution now means developing a sexuality of equality. And I do think that sadomasochism is not as commonly argued to be a feminist value as it was in the 1980s. There were lesbians telling us it was women sort of being strong and powerful and, and so on. Um, a great deal of our theorizing of lesbian ethics then was, uh, the, of theorizing of ethics then was about lesbian ethics, how to treat each other with respect, create a whole new way of thinking about and doing sex, which was not based on the heterosexual model of male domination and female subordination, a model which was reproduced, of course, in dominant submissive sex and role-playing in lesbian communities. That's a huge critique of role-playing along the same lines at the same time, butch and femme. But we went further in thinking about what form of lesbian relating was most suited to lesbian happiness and the world we wanted to create. And we questioned the whole notion of fancying, for instance, and asked whether, uh, uh, where an attraction to a particular woman came from. I mean, there were extraordinary situations where after meetings, and I was never involved in this, um, after a meeting, lesbians would be, all be expected to pair off with each other, and whoever was left had to pair off with the person who was left also with them. I mean, extraordinary stuff, and I, I could never get into that. Unfortunately, I never did get into that. But that's how far the whole critique of fancying went. I mean, we were, we were really pretty serious about it. Uh, some lesbians, of course, engaged in non-monogamy, and others like me questioned that and said that the practice was developed in the masculine sexual revolution and suited men's access to women rather than being in women's in lesbian interests. I don't know how much of this is still going on and what arguments are being made, but I mean, we did make all kinds of arguments about it back in the day. I don't think anybody discusses it now. The way in which love and sex were conducted were a hugely important topic of lesbian and feminist ethics, hugely important, and a great deal was written about it. We questioned bisexuality, which was often promoted as a practice in which women might equally like both women and men and take male and female partners on no better basis than who they fancied at the time. But we pointed out that male and female partners came from very different positions in the hierarchy of male power and women's subordination. This meant that fancying a man was likely to involve being attracted to the power of his political status, whereas loving women may be, meant being prepared to love women, love someone of inferior status, 
uh, uh, and to love and create equality between you. So it's very, very different. And it's extraordinary the way bisexuality is talked about as if it's about the difference between peas and cabbages with your nut roast. And in fact, of course, it is absolutely not. Um, thus, when a woman left another woman to enter a relationship with a man, or simply stated that she was available for such relationships, this had and has an emotionally devastating effect on the woman who is left, because she's been left by a woman to return to the structures of power, to attach herself to a man who has more power and integrate herself into those power relationships. And she's leaving behind a lesbian who is a woman outside those structures and has to survive in that situation. So does that make sense that it's, a, it's, it's about politics and it hugely affects heterosexual women. So bisexuality is a no-no, I would say, in that way. I'm sorry to say this in this room because there may be bisexuals here. But I mean, that was certainly my conclusion and that of many women, I think, at the time. But it's now something that is, is commonly said that women are bisexual. Now, women, lesbians, know that they are treated as inferiors. And so, yes, it's completely different. It's a completely different political situation. Now, all of this has led some women to really trust, uh, distrust bisexual women, and I think some lesbians as a result of this have decided that lesbianism must be biological, and that no other woman can be trusted to be a real lesbian if she's ever related to men, because those women might leave lesbians and might create this devastation in the community and for individual lesbians. So I think that's part of the reason why there is this distrust of women who are seen as not really lesbians these days, at least I suspect so. Now, one big question of ethics that plagued our feminist communities was the issue of boy children. I'll just say that very briefly. Um, lesbian and, and radical feminists um, understood that girl children needed space away from boys, just as their mothers wanted space as women only events and conferences. So we provided women only childcare. Actually, I can remember doing some boy childcare. That was pretty dreadful at a conference. I never wanted children, but you had to look after other women's children. It was one of the principles that you had to do. Ghastly it was. Now, this. <laughs> And I think the understanding was that the understanding was that some lesbians had in or some women had you know inadvertently had children by being in relationships with men. The idea that lesbians would choose to have relation children in the relationships of lesbians, who I would not have looked after because it's their choice, was a totally different matter. Now, isn't that interesting? We can probably talk about that till next year. Um, now. The, so uh, mothers would say you're discriminating against boys, but we'd say we're discriminating in favor of girls. Now, there's another interesting question of ethics in relation to beauty practices, which I'll just mention very briefly, which is that uh, some women might be prepared to say that if heterosexual women or even lesbians use beauty practices, that is exposing lesbians to greater discrimination and potential violence because it exposes us in the community and in the public world. So as a gesture of solidarity, all women should of course be avoiding any kind of femming up, which is trying to get, you know, get favors from the patriarchy, beauty practices and so on. All of that should end so, so that we can create this, um, uh, solidarity between heterosexual women and lesbians and not expose lesbians to take all the hatred of men in the community. Another interesting question is that since feminism is seen as basically about woman loving, it's based um, on women loving other women, and of course this is fundamental to feminism, fundamental. What does it mean if heterosexual women place the men they love, and indeed the boy children they have, 
above women? I mean, it's a very interesting question. So what does woman loving mean in the context of heterosexuality and lesbianism? I'm going to break up uh, to, sorry. Sorry, I, I don't understand. Oh, this further away. It's, it's not really, it's not to do with the Zoom, it's to do with the, the, the but the mic isn't going to affect the Zoom. Okay, so is it the Zoom that's having a problem? Yeah, so speak louder into that okay. as well. I will speak more louder. Yeah. Yep, yep. Just so I'm going to finish that. off anyway yeah. uh, and, and say um, in order for the friendships that are necessary and a pleasure between lesbians and heterosexual women as we fight for our revolution, uh, it's, it's good to have such issues out in the open, I think. So we perhaps need to be starting to talk about them again. Uh, frictions can arise between lesbians and heterosexual feminists and addressing them is the best way to go on, I think. Um, and so uh, I'd like these issues to be on the table for discussion again, as the new stage of feminism begins to develop in strength. Thank you very much. Right, so um, we don't know, we don't know where the mic is that's going into the Zoom. So I think, um, is that better now? Yeah, so I think what is a very important organizing principle is to work out to get the Zoom right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, I'm, and one thing I'm just gonna do before we carry on is going to, we've got Amparo here in the room and I'm gonna make her, a co-host so that um that is sort of part of i'm i'm my talk is going to be about um organizing principles and so we're going to have that um there we are so i'm going to get that so hopefully um uh amparo you can be a co-host now sorry I'll, I'll just get that happening um Make it's brilliant. Okay, so that gives more facility to our organizational structure. So I'm talking now, and I hope is it can people hear me at the back? Yeah, of the actual room, the live room. I'm going to talk about the ethics of radical feminist organizing. And so I think the first thing that we when we organize together as radical feminists. Um, do is we start to understand what radical feminism is and often bits of our ethics or our morality or our values are individual and they're how we relate to ourselves or how we relate to individual other women and then we well it can be that we're in an organization but then we need to start thinking how do we work together as larger organizations maybe groups of five or ten or thirty or a thousand or more and quite a lot has been written about that so in my talk i'm going to uh cover i'm going to sort of mention some that has been written by activists radical feminists their thoughts and i'm also going to talk a bit about how we've been organizing as wdi and where we are now um and some of it might be a process we might decide to move on so any ideas 
do do contribute them either in the chat or we can talk about it because of course we can get better. So one of the first principles of radical feminist organizing is women only. And that's a uh, first principle in a way. And that uh, the reason we have women only organizing is it means that we can center women and we can work together in sisterhood and we don't have the confusion and the possible duplicity, the dishonesty of men in the room. So as I, I'm gonna tell you what I think this is and you might not agree and we can develop what we think it is, but I'll just tell you what I understand as a radical. So um, there can be men who are allies, who are really helpful and believe in a lot of our principles, but however helpful they are, we believe as radical feminists that they're not helpful to be in the room with us because at this moment in the struggle and maybe forever it doesn't at all help our struggle it we just it just never works to have men in our organizations and we've had quite a few examples of men coming to our webinars and they'll be good as gold they'll be listening and Point, putting stuff in the chat and then you hear a couple of months later some women saying oh this man he has been trying to seduce women young women using the ideas that he's gained from your organizer from you know the webinars so that's a, there are so many things that we have problems if men are in our organization so that's first principle women only now that's been um uh and a, a a good example of that is the Women's Social and Political Union led by Emmeline Pankhurst, which was the suffragette organization. They first principle started off women only. There were loads of men that they worked with because at the time they were looking for women's votes in the UK and they had to have men in parliament pushing this through parliament. But they their organizational structure was very fundamentally women only. Another, well, the one I've got secondly is that, well, this comes from Emmeline Pankhurst as well, that we're a liberation movement. She uses the term like a liberation army. We are a sex class liberating ourselves from the oppressors who are the male sex class. So that Emmeline Pankhurst says that, I think it's a good way of thinking of it. We're not a government. We are not a local authority we are not providing uh, services for a nation that we run. We don't run it, we're, like, we're much more like a liberation group who is trying to change politics. That's how I see it. And I sort of agree with what uh, Emmeline Pankhurst said. So that means we organize differently from a government or a local authority or a community group who is trying to provide a space for women to do things now. We're actually trying to achieve political change from a position of being oppressed by a, a, the sex class men. And so I would see that as a useful insight into how we're going to organize. We're struggling for liberation as a sex class. Next thing, a really important principle um, is that sisterhood is powerful. So we, as radical feminists, we have the structural analysis of understanding our structural oppression. And we are, we would favoritize, prioritize sisterhood and working together. So the interconnectedness and the strength of our sisterhood, it's the brotherhood, it's the fraternity who 
conspire to oppress us and however much they might say where you know we don't know what's going on we're just this is just happening they do know what's going on and our conscious sisterhood and our interconnectedness is so important this runs through radical feminism and other bits of feminism but I think our organization understanding our sisterhood and the very strong importance of our togetherness uh, is an ethic now um I think I would say that our third organizational principle is that not every view on everything is equal. We're not postmodernists. We don't believe that every single view that every single person or woman or man has is valid and should have equal time. We actually believe in radical feminist theory and we prioritize that. So if we were in a room and there were uh, a range of different views. It's fair enough to hear them, but we do actually believe in radical feminism and the principles, and we uh, aim to educate ourselves and, you know, work together to understand it and to think about those views. But we um, we have a, a body of understanding and principles which are based in the fantastic work that's been done, particularly over in the second wave, but before that as well. So as part of that, we reject feminine ethics. Like as we reject femininity, the sex role stereotypes that men want us to have, like to wear high heels, wear makeup, perform femininity for the men. We also reject the, I suppose the typical thing with the kindness, women are meant to be kind and inclusive and men are meant to be strong and brave. So our ethics are not being kind in uh, dropping everything to be kind. They are, I would say, they are our own, in the, the ethics that we consider and the values that we consider, which we, we probably haven't spent a huge amount of time or enough time discussing, but they are not the ethics that men want us to have. They And that's linked up to the guilt thing, that they can do the DAVO that Lauren was just talking about, that they say, yeah, uh, you should feel really bad about putting me in prison and, and feel guilty about um, that. So we do, I would say we reject femininity and feminine ethics. Now, a really good articulation of ethics is in this book here by Mary Daly. Um, oh, it's uh, fallen to pieces, but it, Pure Lust. So this is about 1990. Um, now in that, she talks a lot about the ethics that, and that philosophers and moral uh, philosophers have written, males, and that that they suit patriarchy. And so we haven't got time for me to talk about what, all that she says, but she uh, starts to work towards many uh, radical feminist ethics, which are outside patriarchy. And some of the ones that she talks about, it's just worth it if you're interested in, in this. She talks about, um, ideas, uh, uh, she talks about various different virtues, um, and I'm just going to read one part that she says. She says, um, I, this is Mary Daly, I have attempted to show that racy women sin in the most colossal and cosmic way by being elemental. Ontological courage then 
the courage re required for pyrosophical being is sinful virtue. And there's, it's so complicated, but it's so worth reading because she she unpicks a lot of the mind binding and the, the sort of fragmentation that male ethics and male philosophers do to us to stop us being as much as we can be, but also together being in sisterhood. Um, a nice thing I really get from her is she's, she says the courage of pyromantic crones is necessarily outrageous. One meaning of outrageous is exceeding the limits of what is normal or tolerable. So already in those couple of sentences, you can see there's a lot of insight about us being outside and um, so she she's a great person in terms of both our individual ethics and morals, but also how we organize as sisters. And uh, a, another thing I really like in Mary Daly that it links to our organizational ethics is she says discipline is one of the uh, ethical principles of radical feminism. And I love that because we believe in all of this and we have an idea of sort of what's right and wrong and good and bad but our discipline that we do organize and do our fight and our courage and but our our work on this is a, a, an ethical principle that we know how bad things are and we are disciplined enough to start to fight it and i think that's that's a really useful insight um right next we have uh Dworkin. now I haven't read enough talking to know how much she talked about organizing principles, but she's um, that would be interesting. But a thing that she uh, does say is um, uh, we should once we find out, we should dedicate our lives intensely to this struggle forever, <laughs> the whole thing. And I think that's really nice, that just total commitment. We should believe in this and do it. And as an organization, take it terribly seriously for the whole of our lives. That's great by Dworkin. Now, another um, uh, four sister who has written very well about feminist ethics or radical feminist ethics, I'm calling this radical feminist ethics because I've, I feel it's useful, is Simone de Beauvoir uh, in all her work or some of her work about existentialism talks about how there are no hard and fast rules. It, you can't have the uh, privilege and luxury of being good or right because things are too complicated. So her contribution to, well, one of her contributions was that we need to think on our feet where we are now. And sometimes uh, we might do something that is not... Uh, it's not clear that it's good. And her example is uh, as a, in the resistance in the Second World War uh, in France, sometimes there was a possibility of saving the lives of three people, but they knew that in the circumstances they were in, the uh, Nazi uh, sort of uh, party uh, were going to kill 200 people. And so they had to make a choice. Are we going to try and save these three people? But we we pretty much know we're going to guess that they're going to do retribution. What do we do? And you so you can't have this. We're going to be pure and right. And there is a goodness. You have to take 
it, that we are in a struggle and sometimes we have to make hard choices and we might not be right. We might find we were wrong. And I think we sometimes have that. We would love to know what is truth and good, but we don't. And that's it's tough. We need to just do our best. And I like that from Simone de Beauvoir. She's, she's saying that. Now, um, another really interesting insight into feminist organizing is Virginia Woolf in Three Guineas. She talks about the patriarchal structures, the war on women, are uh, how we should, what we should do, and how we should organize. And in the last two chapters of her um, book, uh, Three Guineas, she talks about how then should we organize. And she says that it is very difficult to organize. And she says that in some situations, we should be organizing in the shadows, in the dark, and that actually for some in some situations it's going to we're going to be more effective to be sort of slightly outside and i think she's getting at the idea that sometimes in some situations women can't just set up liberation movements and be out there and on the streets they have to uh work quite quietly in the background and some situations we can be out there but that's very interesting in terms of organizational ethics okay another one that um i have thought or sort of read about um financial so uh a lot of feminist organizations and think about getting money uh, from local authorities, government, lottery funding, how to raise money. And uh, something that radical feminist organizations have often ended up doing is not going down the line of getting money from the patriarchy, even if it looks good, because of the strings attached to the money and the time spent um, jumping through the loops and then not being naughty and uh, the screws that are turned on us if we get money from governments, etc. So that, I would say, is a, not a hard and fast rule, but it has often worked well for radical feminist organisations to see ourselves. We are fundamentally opposed to the patriarchy and that we pay a massively high price if we look for funding from the patriarchy. Um, my feeling is that anytime we get funding from our oppressors, uh, they make sure that we pay for it um, big time and they maybe buy us off. Um, they'll buy off a couple of us and that person will wreak destruction on the organization as they leave because everybody will feel betrayed, etc. It's so really bad. So I, I think often we would not ask for money. Now, um, structure. So um, there was a really good, so Radical Feminists setting up sort of a, at the recent WDI conference in the States, um, there were some of the women who came up with the ideas of, in the beginning of the term Radical Feminism. And around that time, there was quite a bit of discussion about structure. And so it's only sort of Radical Feminism maybe gone about 60 years. Um, to some extent, we come from um, the left, which has the, uh, many of us come from the tradition of the left and that structural organization. So we would have a constitution, 
a structure, we would vote for the leadership, we would discuss things, we would be very democratic. But to some extent, fat radical feminists are very hostile towards the hierarchy of structure. So we've spent quite a bit of time not having structure and having consciousness raising groups and very flat lack of structure and sort of all you know just no just morphing around and organizing ourselves the really interesting article the tyranny of structurelessness written by joe freeman who was at that the u.s conference um talks about how if we don't have a structure often there is an informal structure in the pub and then everybody pretends there's not a stru structure and stitches up meetings and everybody feels a bit gaslit and it's very uncomfortable. So there's a sort of her analysis is maybe we should have structures, we should be honest and we should be as clear as possible about structures. Now that links in, it's, it's unclear exactly what the answer is, but it links in with democracy. Now, um, we... I would think, believe that everybody should have a say in decision-making and participating in how things are done politically. So to some extent, democracy is a very good thing, but it is also a problem for us as a liberation movement, or if we are fighting patriarchy, it's a massive weakness if we have just a very simple democratic structure um, because it's incredibly easy, as we've seen with lots of political parties in the UK, the Green Party was flooded with trans activists, and it's really pretty easy to take over um, a democratic organisation that has voting rights. And it's interesting that if we were, as an organisation, to get ECOSOC status with the UN, their first thing that they say is we have to have a democratic structure. And... So there is there is a sort of problem in radical feminism with with having sort of simple democratic structures. Now, uh, one of the organizations that has stood the test of time as a radical feminist organization and has done brilliantly keeping radical feminists is the Vancouver Rape Relief or Relief. And they have a sort of slightly democratic structure, which is very interesting. And I think it's a good model for. Um, radical feminist organizing. So what they do is they have a, a core committee of, let's say, 14, some number. In order to get on the core committee, you have to read, there's a reading list, you have to read, there's about 10 books you have to read. You have to volunteer with the Rape Relief for, it's either three months or a year, but some amount of time. You have an interview and you're dis the, the people already on the committee discuss what your understanding is of say, Andrea Dworkin or Mary Daly or, or Sheila Jeffries writing. And then if it is felt that you are um, in line with the principles of that organization, then you can be invited to join that central group. And then that, that has actually worked very well for them because they have managed to retain their structure, which is open and committed to inclusive sort of democratic, well, democratic, having many women involved. But it also has not been sidelined or flooded with, say, trans activists. Now, WDI, our organisation, we have not necessarily um, finished or got a Fund a great structure. I think 
a lot of what's been happening with our radical feminist organizing is that things have happened so quickly that we are possibly still organizing. We've just grown very quickly. But we what we have is we have a committee which makes the final decisions of just three people, three women. Um, and then we have country contacts who are a de facto, uh, like they end up making uh, decisions. And we have a variety of groups. We also have uh, a lot of the principles of everybody speaking. So we have breakout rooms in our webinars where there's a lot of that almost like consciousness raising, but the women are being able to organize for themselves. And our, our webinars, uh, one of the fundamental principles is that we do not repeatedly have the same speakers, although a few are often on. So it's this sort of complicated mix of wanting to be um, uh, sort of get everybody involved and let women have a voice and then also to keep the message going. So I suppose it's, it's you know, that's, that's the way it is. Um, I would say a, another ethical principle um, of radical feminist organizing is being interconnected and that us are having strong sisterhood connections with each other. That connection between us is fundamental and is really important. So it's not... Uh, it's the relationships that we have together, those relationships of trust and that building and that sisterhood is what, say, in these webinars we're trying to do. It's it's not necessarily the video that comes out afterwards. It's the sort of Mary Daly like the being. It's the process of us being together and developing together and creating something together and moving or and spiraling, as she says. But all of those links, um, those are really important. And, and the sort of antithesis, the opposite of interconnectedness is the fragmentation. And that's so much that uh, our radical feminist perspectives are interconnected. It, you need to think about all of those implications uh, of what the patriarchy is doing. Um, and I think those are the last ones. I think the last um, thing I would say is um going back to emmeline pankhurst who um were the british suffragette her organization um was criticized um sort of over and over and over and over again so i've just read her autobiography which is great it's called suffragette my life and almost every single action they ever did was criticized by other women uh, who said that they were being disruptive to the Liberal Party. They shouldn't protest against Winston Churchill because actually the Liberal Party was a great thing and that we should all get behind Liberal Winston Churchill because he promised to give the votes to women. Just She just ignored that and they did campaigning on the streets. They went out door to door getting women involved. They organised massive marches, women-only marches, and over and over again, their actions were either ignored by the press or criticised by the press, but they got the press and they created their own newsletter, The Suffragette. They kept it going. Um, they were incredibly brave. And um, they, I suppose the last thing that's interesting, and I think maybe she's right, is she said they were a single issue struggle and they 
uh, they actually were not democratic, but they were all committed to that just one single issue, get the votes. And um, when women disagreed with their struggle, they sort of went off and joined another group. So there's a big time when quite a few of them were saying, we don't agree with this extra militancy of uh, burning down houses. We don't mind breaking breaking uh, windows, but the next thing, because they'd been repeatedly denied the vote, um, they kept ramping up the, the tactics. And then when they started burning down buildings, a few of the women said, I don't think we should do that. We should stay at possibly a little bit of window breaking, but nothing else. And she said, uh, right, well, that's fine. We're going to do this. There are many other organisations you can go go carry on in them. And I think that's a great strength of our, well, I think it can work well to have a range of organisations, not have hard feelings towards people who work differently, but continue with our message. So, um, well, there's a lot to think about. And thank you so much. <laughs> That's it. Right. So we've got uh, we've we've got uh, for everybody at home who's we've got 86 women on the webinar. At home, we're going to carry on for a half an hour. Well, 20 more minutes. Uh, and in the room, we're going to take questions if anybody wants to ask a question. It might be we get the, the mic. So, and then we also might have questions that, Amparo, maybe you could articulate those questions from the chat if there are any. Um, and has anybody here in, in uh, the room? Yes, Kate's got a question. Let's see. Let's see if the other mic works. Um, Right, so Kate, try this one. I know, but it might be good for people. So you might hear the work, Kate. Thank you. Well done, everyone. Thanks very much for setting this all up. And uh, we'll, we'll hear the link. I can't, I can't hear, Kate. Oh, we can turn it up louder. Do it loud to shout it as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for setting this up. You know, it's, it's such a relief to come out of there. It's argument in one of the food stalls, and you know, I won't go into it right now, it might not be appropriate because I haven't calmed down. But the thing, the only thing I want to say at this moment is, um, was it Surrey Cricket Ground that wouldn't um, allow women in? And the suffragettes went to, to see them and said, you know, will you consider letting women in? They said, oh, we let women in to make the tea. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and so by, next, by the following Saturday, the, uh, what do they call it, the hut that they make the tea in and everything? Pavilion. The pavilion, yeah. Was burnt to a cinder. <laughs> and I, and I just reminded of that beautiful thing uh, when you said that. And one other thing is a wee church up in East Lothian, I believe it's called White Craigs or White Sands or something. And uh, they lost their roof, uh, that church, when the suffragettes were because of a fire. Um, it was notorious during the witch burnings, right, for the number of women that they murdered there. And that's what the suffragettes did, isn't it? Isn't it humbling? Isn't it? Yeah. I find it humbling. Anyway, that's all I want to see. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, let's go to Cara and then we'll come back and see if uh, or uh, uh, anybody wants to respond. Yeah. So, so I think my question here is for Lauren on the, on the topic of enforcement. And we've talked about this before. And, and when we talked about it, I said to you, how, how can we sort of do this in the, in the context you mostly spoke about communication tactics and, and, and styles and manipulative ways that 
that many people have with communicating, including many women in the movement. And so I said to you, what can we do beyond just ask people, women, like don't be a jerk, right? Like don't engage in passive aggressive communication. Don't engage in DARVO. Don't be manipulative. But what can we do beyond just expecting women to just be decent communicators and, and, and have ethical communication and have ethical disagreements? And your response was, well, no, there are things we can do. And you spoke about this during your talk in terms of calling it out and whatnot. But I just wanted to maybe emphasize it and, and ask you to elaborate a little bit about how we can call each other out when we're engaging in unethical communication and also how we can call each other out when we're engaging in unethical communication without then being accused of ourselves being patriarchal enforcers and engaging ourselves in hyper-masculine tactics. Right, that, great question, great practical question, I love it. Um, I, I think that we, we have to, I think the, the key to the answer in both cases is collectivity. This is about collectivity. This is about creating, um, creating a collective set of ethics that we have agreed to, that we have worked out, that we've argued about previously, and that we remember that we've argued about and we've decided previously. So in that case, when it doesn't, you don't have to be a leader to call out the bad behavior. Anyone can call out the bad behavior. Anyone can label it. And the group has, and anyone can remind the group that this, this is settled territory that has already happened. And um, ultimately, I think there may develop, and I don't know how, how you're going to feel about this, but there's, I think there's bound to develop a sense of shame about violating the rules that we have all agreed to. We're not, we're not going to want to do that. We're not going to be the one who violates the, the rules that, that all of us agree to, in, including the person who violated them. Um, it's, so it, it seems to me that the decentralization is, is an antidote to your second question, to, to whoever's calling it out. Uh, being then framed as a, a bully uh, or a manipulator or, or or whatever. These are these are rules. This is direct. This is honest communication. Our goal is honest communication, and our goal is collectivity. I think if we bear those in mind and we do process, we create process in accordance with collectivity um, and, and and decentralization. Really, that uh, that we can get there. It's. It's it's a, a the process is a process in itself. Um, yeah, Amparo has got a question. I'll, I'll bring the mic and then you can get it. But this is from from Interweb. Let's got this. This a uh, question from from the chat uh, from Anaria in Spain. How do we keep men out of women's spaces? Let's do Sheila on this. <laughs> I didn't hear that question very well. Can you say that again? Again, say it again louder. How do we keep men out of women's spaces? That's the question. 
<laughs> yeah, well, this I have to say this was never a problem for us at the, in the 70s and 80s because we simply, you know, the first couple of years men did come to things. Women quickly got very pissed off with the way that they behaved and the principle was established of women only and that's how it was. I mean, men didn't come to anything after that because it was women only. We didn't have the problem of men in dresses saying they were women. There were only one or two of them around, so that wasn't a difficulty we had. But the principle of everything being women only because only women can understand, describe, and work out how to deal with their own oppression. Only women can because they are the only ones who are women. So it doesn't make any sense for there to be men involved in any of this. And I think we used to say back at the in the day, you know, um, trade unionists do not always have to have the employers there. And in fact, they rarely seem to think that is a good idea. Right? That doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So we are a trade union of women, and of course, having the employers there makes little sense for us. So I don't know how I, what I can say now is we just have to say it. We just have to say it, and we just have to do it. Women only, that's it. Um, you know, the reasons men shouldn't be there are very clear, and they need to go off and do their own thing, and we know they won't do their own thing, uh, but of course we will ask them to do so. Actually, in the 1970s, they did, because there were men against sexism groups all over the UK. I think it happened in the US as well. And men did organize groups amongst themselves where they talked about what advantages they had over women, how could they could change the way that they behaved towards women. I mean, amazing. They have a newspaper in Britain called Achilles Heel, some copies of which I think are online. So, I mean, that's what they need to do. They need to go off and do that. And in fact, I had a boyfriend in 1976 who was in one of those groups. And we used to have discussions then about and what side of the barricade, Dave, are you going to be on when it comes to the revolution? Right? <laughs> now, because we knew there was going to be a revolution and there was going to be barricades. I mean, this was a revolutionary time. I actually can't remember exactly where Dave was going to be. I don't think he could possibly have been with women. That means I think he recognized that he wasn't going to be with the women because that was not a possibility. Anyway, that's an irrelevant. Sorry, I hope that's a reasonable funny, answer. <laughs> Are there any other? Oh, there's another question from Kate or or thing, which is going to be great. Okay, should we go to Ray now and then Kate and the Shout as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with shouting. <laughs> I've done a lot of it. Um, Joe, I was delighted to hear you talk about interconnectedness, and um, and then then we've also touched on the um single issue thing. And one of the things that amazes me. Through WDI as an example, with the interconnectedness of a great variety of women and our perspectives, our backgrounds, but this, this, so it's it might be a single issue, but we are not we are not a single woman. We bring all our differences with us, but focus through that. So that interconnectedness is is actually very broad. It, it doesn't mean we have a narrow. Um, concept and contact with each other and I think it is definitely a strength it gives us um, autonomous it reminds me of Leah Keith talking about um, deep root resistance and autonomous groups that are um, not necessarily even knowing about each other and, and to me it gives us a lot more safety and, and privacy sometimes we need to be hidden we've all touched on this so I just just a few ideas, you know, from, from the inspiration of listening to you all. Thank you very much. You might want to comment. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's sad that, no, I mean, I think that's in itself answers it. So I think Empire has got something, and then we'll go back to Kate. 
There's um, a question by yeah. Bowden in Sweden. Sh uh, Emperor shouted. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's a question addressed to Lauren by Bowden, and uh, it reads, Lauren, do you seriously think that women should leave the room to be able to cry? How about learning that my tears are not a message to anyone and that no one has to take responsibility for my feelings? And that, but she, she, she's writing that, uh, she added that smiley. So it's, it's, a, well, it's a question, <laughs> but um, I guess I wanted to elaborate on that. This is what I was thinking as well when, when, when you were talking about that. So uh, Bodil and I agreed. Um, yeah. So could you? So yes, I'm serious. Um, I think that it's inevitable that um, that cr crying in public is in a public meeting is going to disrupt the meeting. It's and I think we have to ref we have to we have to do a cultural shift a little bit. Um, I, I it's it's antisocial behavior. I think we have to get our heads around the the idea that crying at a at a political meeting is antisocial behavior. It undermines the seriousness of the political meet, meeting, uh, just as though, just as, you know, if I had to throw up in a, in a political meeting, I would leave the room. <laughs> I would leave the room before anybody knew that I had to throw up, ideally, right? Let's, let's think of it as throwing up. We don't want to do it in a, in, because it, it's inevitable that it will be disrupted and it, it should be considered antisocial. Great, and then let's go to Kate. Kate, are you okay to take it down there? Oh, all right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, thanks very much. This is a really important issue. Um, I have to disagree with you, Lauren. It's lovely to see you. Um, and, uh, but I have to disagree with you. I think that you mentioned shaming, right? And uh, shaming doesn't work, and I can think of two and a half reasons, just off the top of my head, why it doesn't work. First of all, shaming is a, a type of social enforcement of social conformity, um, which is linked to various kinds of bullying. Um, and uh, those of us that are autistic, who are quite overrepresented within feminism, because we um, kind of inevitably, invariably have an independent worldview, and um, social acceptance is not as powerful in containing us uh, as women um, and we I anyway speaking for myself I'm not as affected by shaming I don't think I've ever felt shame and I, I used to worry if I was psychopathic actually because I very rarely feel guilt it wasn't until I got the dog that I started feeling guilt can you believe it um obviously I'm not Catholic <laughs> so shaming I see as a really negative um emotion in any case it's um it's not linked to behavior, it's linked to a sense of yourself not being good enough. And uh, I think it's a really bad thing and, and uh, to, something to be gotten rid of as soon as you can. The other reason that um, using shaming as a way to um, enforce or validate our ethics, the other reason that, that this is the two and a half bits that doesn't work is that some of the people who engage in that behavior are agile provocateurs, right? Undoubtedly, I mean, you know, undoubtedly. Um, they, um, if I was in the porn industry, I would be spending money trying to upset and disrupt and dismantle the women's organizations that are resisting porn 
opposing fighting form, and uh, and obviously the trans dogma is intimately linked uh, with the porn industry and this exploitation of and violence against children and women as well. Um, and there's another slight reason which is linked to that, which is that you know, and I, I think most of us know this through our own experience. Um, the the emotional responses that we have to other women and men when we pro project our feelings, our unexplored and unresolved feelings and opinions and ideas onto other people is, um, you know, is, is, is something that um, it, that happens. I mean, you know, it's driven, it's driven behavior, you know, um, uh, and, and a lot of the women who come into the women's liberation movement and all its uh, kind of forms uh, are, we're all survivors of trauma of one kind or another. We're all kind of growing up and surviving this bloody patriarchal male supremacist society and we do the best we can you know I, I try and kind of bear that in mind and so you know apart from I don't know you meet women look I am um, I always have sorry I'll let you know this I always have a sort of slight thing which is how long does it take a woman before she tells me she's straight right so when I meet a woman um whether it's at work or whether it's been you know the street whatever it is um, how long does it take before she tells me about her husband right, or a boyfriend or well, basically that she's straight? And that's just an indication to me of how anxious this woman is about me being an obvious lesbian. So there's an example. Right now, she doesn't know that she's doing that out of some fear or lesbophobia, right? She's just acting out of her learned behaviour of how to survive under male supremacy. You know? And so when we're trying to have a rational discussion with someone, about the roots of male supremacy and our oppression and they respond out of their survival mechanisms in um, under male supremacy uh, i don't think a code of ethics i don't like telling straight women i don't believe there are straight women by the way but uh, i don't believe that telling women that uh, it's not appropriate to mention their husbands or that you know in front of lesbians i don't think that helps all it does is it in, in, you know in, in, enhances a notion of thought police and um, lesbian feminist policing make up and behavior and all the rest of it. See what I mean? I do, Kate. Th thanks. Thanks for that question. I, in a way, it's it's a question. It, in a way, it's related to Kara's question earlier, uh, and I think the answer is is related also. It's not the thought police. It's not top down. What we're not what we're doing is not top down. What we're trying to do is, first of all, be conscious. We can learn to be conscious of the things that are driving us. We can learn to do do better than um, than what our uh, emotional survival mechanisms tell us we need to do in the moment in order to survive patriarchy. Because at this moment, we're in a political meeting with radical feminists. And uh, yeah, uh, and 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 also as we do this, and as we as we proceed, um, and and as we develop a history of having done this, um, I, I think that we we will develop a code of ethics. It won't be the thought police doing it. It will be all of us having agreed that this is the way to have. A, a meeting, a political meeting that's not dysfunctional, that doesn't get disrupted, that that aims at um, at agreement, so that we can move on, so that we can actually make progress in our understanding and in our strategy. 
Um, and, and it may be that shame doesn't work for some people and it may not work for anybody. I, I'm throwing that out there as, as a suggestion, but I think what is possible for, for everyone is, is to, I mean, if we're all radical feminists and if we're, we're aiming for a radical feminist uh, set of solutions, that that uh, we we can um, we can agree on what kind of what kinds of behaviors fu function well. That's we're going to call it today then. Is so, there time, Joe, for me to throw out something on the topic of how do we keep men out of women's spaces? Yeah, it's ethical as radical feminists to allow one more one more yeah. question. Yeah, that's part of our ethical structure. Yes, go for it. Yeah, on, on that out of women's spaces. And I I don't know if this is a good idea or not a good idea, but I do know that in the United States, we have a big problem. And I don't know if this is a problem elsewhere, but we have a lot of laws on the books that talk about discrimination on the basis of sex. And these laws were all meant to protect women. They were meant to promote women. They were meant to remedy hundreds of years of discrimination against women. And they all use the word sex. And now we have a big problem, which is that no one seems to know what sex means. I mean, I know that we all in this room know what sex means, but we've got this problem, which is that we've got gender identity, which is overriding sex. And so my suggestion for keeping men out of women's spaces is maybe we just need laws on the books everywhere that define sex, that say what a woman is, that say what a man is, that say what sex is, so that we can continue to actually have laws on the books that are intended to remedy hundreds or thousands of years of discrimination against women. I wish we did not have this problem, but we do. So that's my suggestion for how do we keep men out of women's spaces, is we can have laws in place that say what men are and what women are. Yes. Okay, so um, so thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, everybody, on the webinar. There's been over, um, well, up to 88 of us here on the on the webinar, and we've got nearly 50 in the room here in Cardiff. Um, I'd really like to thank everybody involved in the tech today because it's a, yeah, and the technical issue today, uh, because it's just been a very collective, uh, sisterhood is powerful thing. If, uh, about five of us brought bits and bobs in order to do it and have taken over aspects of it. And it's just fantastic. It's, it, it, you know, it just is a massive achievement. And then also really to thank Sheila Jeffries and Lauren Levy uh, for making fantastic contributions to this. And hopefully it'll be an ongoing debate. And we've had loads of stuff in the chat. Next week on Radical Feminist Perspectives, we think, or we hope, we're going to have Marion Rutigliano and Leah Keith talking uh, against sadomasochism, sadomasochism, radical feminist analysis um, from the anthology by, edited by Robin Ruth Linden, Darlene Pagano, Pagano, Diana Russell, and Susan Laystar. But we'll confirm that um, once we've got a hundred percent of that. Um, so. Uh, I think someone's going to open the breakout rooms. If not, we will make sure they're open for anybody online who wants to do that. Everybody here in our room, we're going to carry on all day and we're going to have sort of break, breakout room discussions and the, uh, it's going to be much more sort of we're going to make it up as we go along. We haven't got a very fixed structure for today. We've got some stuff written on the flip chart, but right now we're going to have a break. 
uh, coffee, unlimited biscuits, and we'll work out what we're going to do next. So thank you very much, everybody, and bye. Hello. <laughs>